I'm Ellen Datlow, and welcome to the Grim Tidings Podcast. Today's guest has been an editor of short fiction, fantasy, and horror for over 35 years. To date, she's edited and co-edited nearly 100 anthologies. She's won multiple Bram Stoker Awards, Shirley Jackson Awards, World Fantasy Awards, Locus Awards, the Carl Edward Wagner Award. She was given a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Horror Writers Association and just recently picked up her seventh Hugo Award. She's worked as a fiction editor for Omni Magazine, Event Horizon, Sci-Fiction, and currently works as consulting fiction editor for Tor.com. Easily one of the most prominent literary forces working in speculative fiction today. Ellen Datlow, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Glad to have you on. Uh, we've been uh, had you on our radar for some time for uh, editors, and, and uh, it's great to, to get you on. Uh, congratulations on the 7th. Hugo Award, you must be running out of space uh, on your trophy case there. There's always room for one more someplace, I think. <laughs> <laughs> now, is winning your seventh Hugo Award more riveting than your sixth Hugo Award, or does it eventually it just starts to bleed together? As... No, it never bleeds together. And actually, it is exciting because last year I wasn't even nominated because the puppies took over the slate. So mm -hmm. it's especially gratifying that, um, you know, the last, I think the last time I won was like two years ago, I'm not sure, two or three, I can't remember. So no, it's always gratifying um, to be remembered. I mean, the thing is, you know, editors, once we're out of sight, once we stop editing, you kind of disappear. And so having, having these tangible things around is, is very satisfying. <laughs> I, I can only imagine what, what your trophy case looks like. It's, well, I have an armoire, and I have everything on there on the top of it, pretty much. <laughs> I'm looking at a bunch of doll heads and a bunch of awards. But they stick up high so I can see them from here. <laughs> well, we've had multiple editors uh, on the show before, and we'll include those uh, in the show notes so folks want to hear some of our conversations that we've had with ed editors before uh, that'll be available to them. Uh, but here on the show, we really like to get into the guts of the publishing publishing industry. So Ellen, we're delighted to get a chance to kind of pick your brain on both editing and really just talk about the art form of putting a quality anthology uh, together. You've edited or co-edited nearly 100 anthologies spanning multiple themes and genres. And your latest uh, that we're going to chat about today, because we are celebrating October horror here on the podcast, all month long, horror-related podcast, but we're going to talk about the best horror of the year, number eight from Nightshade Books, which you edited, um, and it's a, a compendium of 20 short stories and novelettes um, from 2015, 
Um, and it's a little different from the anthologies that we usually talk about on the show because the anthologies we usually talk about are uh, brand new stories. But uh, this anthology is actually a collection of stories that have been published from 2015, and it's kind of the best of the best of the best. And Ellen, you have the duty of selecting the finest and then presenting them to readers. Um, so I wanted to just start off talking about um, um, kind of the – sorry, I lost my notes here. One the second. process. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, let's just dive into the process of how this anthology, The Best Horror of the Year 8, came together and what your involvement is in the process. So maybe take us from – from concept to, to publication and how, how you decide what stories are going to get picked. Okay, well, to be very brief, um, I co-edited the Year's Best Fantasy and Horror for 21 years, with first with Terry Windling and then with um, Gavin Grant and uh, Kelly Link. And I always, and that was half fantasy and half horror, and I covered, I did the horror half. So when that finished, um, I was still hoping that to do a best of the year, and I was able to sell the idea to um, just doing a best horror because I wasn't doing the fantasy. I was able to sell the idea to Nightshade Books, which is owned by Skyhorse, not the original Nightshade. Um, I mean, anyway, it's it's Nightshade Books, um, and right now, you know, so I've been doing well. I'm working on the ninth volume now. So every year, I try very hard to read as all the short stories that could be horror. Um, which means I skim a lot. I also have a reader now who helps. Um, if there are, with uh, someone who helps me to cover material that may not, that probably does not have horror in it, but might. For example, Analog Magazine is a hard science fiction magazine, and but once in a while they do have a horror story in it. So she helps me cover those venues and the mystery venues like Asim. Ah, uh, sorry, like. Um, Ellery Queen and Alfred Hitchcock, she'll go through them, and if there's anything really dark enough for me to consider horror that she knows that I would like to read, she'll pass them on to me. But that's kind of my aim, although I always fall short, because it's hard to see everything and hard to read everything. Um, so the first thing, as I read, I'm sorry, excuse me, that was, I had a sure my <laughs> computer was lighted, lit up again. No problem. Um, <clears throat> so basically, my during my first read, if I like something, I'll, I may give it an honorable man. I'll put it on my rec list. <clears throat> if I really like it, I'll put an asterisk by it, which means I'll go back to it to read. And so the stories, I'll read hundreds of stories a year. I mean, my honorable mentions, I only put a hundred now in the book and then the rest on my website. And um, all those stories are just a, a, a tiny percentage of what I actually read. Okay. So even if there are 300 stories, 400 stories on the honorable mentions, I read like I don't know, more, way more than that, because those are the stories that I actually liked. Um, so anyway, I go back towards the end of the year to the starred stories, and I'll reread them. And the thing is, I know how many words I have to fill. Um, it was, I think it started about 125,000, now it's like 150,000 or something like that. So when I count up the wordage, I count the wordage of the stories that I've starred, and it usually comes up to twice or three times what I can use. So then it's the process of elimination. And during that process, I'll be reading and rereading and re-rereading -re stories over and over again. And the ones that are still, the ones that can still stand, let's put it that way, the ones that can stand reading over again are the ones that stay with me and the ones I pick for the year's best. So it goes through that process. If the story... If I really, really like that story and can stand reading it like three times, um, it you know, if I have space, it will get into the book. So that's basically how it works. And I just try to read everything I can. And then with the with the summary of the year, I, I try to. Um, I only read a few novels a year. I just don't have the time. But I try to cover nonfiction, horror material. Um, I solicit material all year round, and I try to get publishers to send it to me, but. Not everyone does, and I can only nag once or twice because then I forget. So I can only cover what I receive. And every year, like right now, I have I notice that someone tells me, oh, you didn't cover this. And I completely forgot to mention some magazine that I should have or mm. something else that I should have that I just missed. That, or even I might have read it, but I completely forgot to put in my summary of the year. So that's horrible. I hate doing that. And you can't fix it. You know, Some things you can fix in the ebook, but not major chunks that you left out. So that's basically the process. 
Yeah, so it does have a summary um, in, in the book as well, kind of highlighting the top horror novels, magazines, anthologies, and awards that were um, collected um, over over the years. So you kind of highlight what's the best of the best well, in the I, genre that, that folks can check out. That's my subjective opinion on that. I mean, the novels, I only read a few novels a year. So I have to, I'd have to pick novels that I find that look interesting to me and look appropriate. You know, they look really dark and um, they look like something that will that I will like. And so I will pick those limited limited books. It doesn't mean they're the only terrific novels out there that year. Mm -hmm. um, it's just the ones that I've gotten to read that I've had a chance to read and really liked. Yeah, well, you've been noted as kind of having your finger on the pulse of what f readers crave. You, you, you have a, a knack of, of finding what's best, and, and folks love your anthologies. I mean, picking up, uh, I was doing your, the research for you and just counting up the awards that you've, you've been uh, nominated for and then won year after year after year. I mean, you, you started in 79, right? Um, About editing fiction? Or? In, well, Omni magazine. I started approximately associate fiction editor in Omni magazine around 79, and then I think by 1980, um, the fall of 80, I think I was, or maybe the fall of 81, I can't remember, I was made fiction editor. Is there ever like a, a fine balance between, well, I really like this story, or maybe I don't like this story as much, but I know readers are really going to enjoy it. Is there ever kind of a, a disconnect, or do you, is it always something that you really super enjoy, something that you're going to put forth in an anthology? If I'm doing a solo anthology, it's going to be something that I really like, and I don't do it for the readers. I have to assume that the readers are going to follow me or not. Um, for co-edited anthologies, it's not as clear-cut because there is compromise. You know, if I'm working with another editor, um, they may. We usually have one free story. That means one that one loves and the other doesn't, and one free turn down that one I hate or you hate it, and we turn it down. Um, mm -hmm. So, in a way, that's more of a compromise. When I do my own anthologies um, solo, I don't care. I, it's not that I don't care what the readers think. I mean, I. <laughs> But it's got, I have, no, I don't buy it. I don't buy stories just to please, you know, because I think the readers are going to like it. I have, to, I buy the stories because I like them. I love them myself. Uh, you mean, also, you don't know what the readers are going to like. You can't do that. Um, I mean, you have to be true to what your own, you know, your own tastes. Otherwise, you're not going to be a good editor if you're not, I mean, you have to develop your own taste, your own take on things. You can't just always think, oh, I'm going to, I need to publish things that everyone will like. You know, sometimes I buy a story I really love, and I really I think I hope that this is going to be really popular. I hope everyone's going to love the story because I love it so much. But not, I don't buy something I don't care about to just please writers. I mean, I'm sorry, readers. Mm -hmm. Well, publishers. As as far as uh, your philosophy on horror fiction, when you're reading horror fiction, uh, you mentioned in a Reddit AMA you did a few years ago that nothing really scares you when when you read horror fiction, uh, me, I'm probably one of the easiest, uh, rattled people on earth. <laughs> when I was a kid, I was always crying. Oh any, no. Any, anytime <laughs> something. Well, I'm surprised that you stuck with horror then. <laughs> well, it's just, uh, I don't know. I guess my, very uh, brave you. <laughs> I just, uh, fell in love with it eventually, but it took a while because, uh, you know, things were always scaring the shit out of me when I was younger. Um, you, you mentioned that you mostly look for um, creeping dread or interesting characters. Uh, how do you feel that the writers you set for your anthology capture this feeling of creeping dread? How, how can a writer encap encapsulate the feeling of creeping uh, dread? Not being, you know, that's a tough question. Not being a writer myself, I don't know. Um, but subtlety is usually more effective than bang, 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 bang. You mm -hmm. know, if you have subtle and then bang, or subtle and, you know, just a strange turn, that's me, I think, much more effective, because otherwise you just get dead into the sensation. If it's just all sensation and all, you know, blood and guts and constantly, then you just don't care anymore. Um, but that's, but how you create the dread, I don't know. I mean, as a, as not, I am one of the few well, I don't know. That's not true. I'm going to say I was going to say I'm one of the few non-writing editors, but I don't. I think there are a lot of editors who don't write, um, so I don't know how to create that dread. I just know I, when I when I see it, I know it's working for me. Okay, so as 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 far as the interesting characters, what are some of the character types that have appealed to you as an editor over the years? 
Oh, well, it's just individual characters. I mean, the thing is, characters make a story as much as anything else, because there are so few original plots in any fiction form that it's going to be the characters and the background, you know, the venue where it's taking place. It's going to be the tone. It's going to be the voice that are going to be different. So you have to create interesting characters. Now, they don't have to be nice people. Um, I've ranted... If you follow me on Facebook, you'll notice I ranted about a book I was reading that I thought that the psycho was really boring. It's like, I mean, psychos are fine, but if you're going to create a psycho, make them interesting. Otherwise, it's like, why bother, you know? Um, so it's, as I said, they don't have to be likable characters, but the reader has to want to follow them where they're going. There has to be something about the character that draws the reader in, or otherwise you're going to lose the reader. You know, so... Um, I mean, that it's the whole combination of how you put together a good story. And it's the characterization, as I said, the tone, the voice, where it takes place, and the story itself, the plot. You know, it's very seldom that I find something that surprises me in a dreadful way. Um, I can give an example of something that I read recently that it, the whole novel, I really, I really like the whole novel a lot, but one particular part of it just filled me with dread more than anything I think I've read in ages, Hex, by um, the, the um, uh, Dutch author Thomas Holdenhildelt. Um, it's about a witch. He actually transported the novel from Holland, where, where he's from. He translated it, when it was translated in English, he wrote it, he uh, put it into upstate New York and it works perfectly and mm. apparently he changed the ending and I don't um, I just emailed him saying well what was the original ending I want to know <laughs> but dreadful part I mean this is not a spoiler because it's right in the beginning um, there's a witch who's like a hundred hundreds of years old a hundred years old well hundred a couple hundred I guess or several hundred and um, her mouth and her eyes are stitched up and she haunts this town and she just appears spontaneously in people's houses behind them she just stands there and does nothing and then she may just as suddenly disappear and that is so it's such a terrifying image i mean it was really creepy so he did a good job at that usually i don't get that much of a feeling of dread i mean that was one of the most i mean the whole novel is really as i said it's really good but that mm -hmm. aspect of it is like wow yeah and that was really original to me i mean i've never read anything like that um and i i appreciated it that he came up with that. We call that Creepy McCreeperton. <laughs> okay. Have you read it? Have you ever read it? Yet? No, it sounds oh, fascinating, though. Go get it. Hex. Yeah. yeah. And so we're talking about the, the best horror of the year, volume eight. And so you, you go through the, you read all year long and you reread and you reread. And then you finally, you say, this is my list of 20 amazing stories. Mm -hmm. Is there sort of a balance to deciding the order of the, those stories that you put, put in the anthology? Yes. Well, for any anthology, um, except, well, there's certain anthology, like I have one coming out called Nightmares, um, A New Decade of Manahara, and that's all reprinted. That's historical. So that one you would do in order of when something was published. But any other anthology, whether it's a reprint anthology or an original one, you always put a strong story first. I don't put the strongest, I mean, what I consider a strong story. It, but it needs to be um, accessible. You want the readers, you want it to draw readers in. You don't want it to be too dense, too weird, um, but you want it to be, as I said, to draw the reader in. And then maybe the second story is another strong one. And you don't start with something that's too long. Um, and then the last story is either what you consider the strongest story or maybe the next strong, uh, or or. You might put the strongest story next to last and then have a grace note story, which I've done a few times. Um, and then in the middle, you put something. Uh, oh, then everything else is kind of a juggling act. It doesn't matter as much. I mean, you try to um, arrange it so that long stories aren't next to each other, and you try to make sure that the tones either, if you have two stories that have the same tone, you might either want to put them together or you might want to separate them. So it's kind of a juggling act. The problem with, of course, putting any table of contents together is you can't dictate how the reader is going to read it. For all I know, the reader is going to read a middle story first or pick their, writer, their favorite writers to read first mm -hmm. or last. But, you know, on the other hand, we have to ignore that as editors and just do it the way we think it's going to work. So it's kind of a juggling act. And some people, um, I was on a panel recently, and that person said they put the strongest story first, which I think is a mistake, but that's their, how they do it. Um, I just would put a strong story first. 
because I want because if you put the strongest story first, there's nothing to you know you want to build up in some way. And so Nightshade is is kind of overseeing uh, the at least the production of the best horror of the year um, series. What's kind of their involvement in 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 your your decisions to pick these stories? Nothing. I mean, they give me a word count and I give them a, a book, <laughs> basically. I mean, you know, I, have a con- I mean, I they don't when I work with any publisher, they're hiring me for my expertise, and I do not expect them. I mean, we I get copy edited. I mean, the stories. I edit all the stories if they're originals. Um, there will be a copy edit. Sometimes, once in a while, not very often, sometimes the in-house editor will have some questions about an original story, but not very often unless they don't trust you. I mean, if someone sees, you know, if I'm, everyone can miss something. So if there's something confusing, I don't have a problem with the in-house editor saying, um, could you ask the author to maybe fix something? But that's very, very rare. However, there's a copy edit. And then I, I usually go over the copy editing before I send everything to the authors individually. Um, because uh, often the copy editing is, copy editors can be really useful and are really good, but sometimes they don't pay attention to voice. And sometimes they query things that are like, well, it's obviously dialogue, would you please leave it? So I'll go over a copy edit and stick what I disagree with immediately. And then I'll pass the rest of it on to the author to go over. And then there's reading. But, you know, basically, I mean, the publisher does all the things publishers do. And then they market it and they they get it out to stores. They hopefully send out review copies and set up interviews and and pay us (laughs) (laughs) on time. So (laughs) you. They don't have an editorial. Sometimes with original anthologies, um, when you're doing that, when you're working on a contract, a publisher may ask for a specific, um, you know, they may want a few bestsellers. In the book, and the problem with that is you should never let it go into a contract specific names because you can't guarantee someone's going to send you the story. Even if Stephen King says, "Yeah, I really want to write you a story for this. I love the idea," it doesn't mean he's going to do it. You know, you can't make you can't. I can't as an editor sit on someone's porch and make them write a story. So to force yourself into that position is a really bad position to be. Is is really not a good idea. Um, and usually that's with anthologies that you get paid more. I mean, you know, if you're going to get paid, if you want more money for an anthology, then you're going to have more demands from the publisher to have certain writers in there. So I would much more, I would much prefer to have the freedom to publish anyone I want than to be stuck having to get a big name. So, so because you have that freedom to pick what you want, essentially, are there any times that you may? Uh, not pick a certain story because maybe you have too many of a certain kind of story, like maybe you have too many ghost stories or... For an original? For, you mean for a reprint anthology? For a yes. best year? Oh, yeah. Well, what happens sometimes, um, it's very rare that I'll buy a story on the first read, um, a reprint. Sorry, I've got cat fur in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> That's always a problem with heat and cats. Um, ugh. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Uh, I can tell you a horror story, but I won't, about not my cat, someone else's cat. But anyway, um, I forget what, what was, I'm sorry, what was, what were they talking about? As far as when you, you pick a, uh, Oh, those, oh yeah, stories of a certain type. Yes. Uh, it's very rare that I'll pick a story as I read it, but sometimes I do, you know, but it's usually towards the end that I actually make the choices. And yes, when I'm making the choices, I am definitely aware of, if I, of, of certain kinds of stories. Um, it's happened twice over time that I've gotten stories that were very similar in place. I mean, they were different stories. They weren't plagiarized from each other or anything like that. They were very, they were, I loved them equally as well, but they were too similar to take both of them. Mm-hmm. And I had, finally, I made, I did not tell the authors this. I mean, I never contacted the one that I ended up not taking, but what I decided is I took the one from the venue that needed more publicity. Because the stories were equally great, um, so I never told the, the the publication or the writers of the one I didn't take that I didn't take it, but they were almost taken. <laughs> so that's happened maybe twice. But yeah, you have to be aware. You, it's more as you go on, as you start picking stories, you kind of realize there may be 
too many of this type of story, too many of that story, and you want to be careful of that. So you have to pick the best. Like there are a lot of horror stories from the point of view or about children, uh, children who are bad children, bad seeds, or children who are victims. And you want to make sure that your whole book isn't full of that. Yeah. So yeah, you, you are aware. I mean, any editor should be aware, needs to be aware of what they're publishing or what they're buying just to have the balance in your brain as to what you're doing and to that bring balance to the book, whether it's a reprint anthology or an original one. You've mentioned before too, that uh, short horror fiction is actually in a golden age. Mm -hmm. What exactly do you mean by that, Ellen? I mean, there is more great short horror fiction being published, I think, than ever before. Um, I see it all over the place. I see it coming from other countries. I, there are writers who are um, non-Americans. Who I mean, I've been I've been publishing stories by English, Canadians, and Australia for a while. But I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about um, stories from other cultures. There are, you know, British Indians. Um, uh, British East Indian, and there are a lot of people from other countries, from uh, Asia, and from uh, from Mexico. I mean, there are a lot of new writers coming into the field who are producing excellent work, and who are not known five years ago. And stories in translation. I'm mostly talking about not stories in translation, but there are stories in translation too. There's some Japanese writers who are writing really good work. Um, so yeah, I think it's terrific. I'm I'm really happy about what the field is like. I mean, compared to when I started, well, unfortunately, it means I have to read more. But <laughs> and not, the only the other thing is that a lot of horror isn't being published as horror and not being published. In, there are very few horror, strictly horror publications. And when people are asking me for markets, I'll say, you know, FNSF publishes horror. Interzone, even though they specialize in science fiction, and they have a horror sister, Black Static, sometimes published horror. Lightspeed, which is sister to Nightmare, sometimes publishes horror. Clark's World, sometimes publishes. You know, all these things, these these um, online webzines and uh, sorry, webzines and um, and print magazines publish horror in addition to what else they're doing. Even um, literary journals publish horror. So that's why, in a way, I'm doing the screening to figure out what is out there that is horror that you may not be aware of. You know, so it's all over the place. Uh, but it may not be called horror. You may not e easily find it. But it's, it's just terrific. I mean, there are, some, there are some literary writers who have always been writing horror but are also embraced by the mainstream, like Brian Evanson is one example. He writes a lot of horror. And he's published often by mainstream. Victor Laval, well, Victor Laval, he has only written novels except for The Ballad of Black Tom, which is a novella he wrote for me. That's a Lovecraftian novella. Um, but he's considered a mainstream writer. You know, Karen Joy Fowler still writes. She, I don't know, she's not writing that many short stories these days. Um, but she started out in science fiction, became embraced by the mainstream, and still writes genre stories. Not necessarily horror, although once in a while they are. Yeah, so that's why, I mean, and it's just, I'm happy. I'm happy as a clam, <laughs> you know, except I have to read it all. <laughs> but it's great discovering new writers. Carmen Machado, um, you know, just all these interesting, Priya Sharma. There are all these interesting writers producing terrific horror or dark fantasy. It's not even, it's darker than dark fantasy, but I'd say horror. What would you say is the difference between dark fantasy and horror? Like if, uh, is it, they kind of it's sister not, genres? No, I'd say dark fantasy is closer to fantasy than horror. Um, it used to be that I would think, well, if it's dark enough, it's horror. It's, fa it's dark fantasy until it gets really, really dark. But then I realized over the uh, last year or so, I've been thinking about it. And no, I think dark fantasy has a different tone to it completely. Um, mm. It may have horror things happening. It may be people get killed, there's a lot of violence, maybe um, awful things happen, but it's got an exuberance and a happiness that that horror doesn't have. Horror doesn't always have to be, but it's often nihilistic. The people at the end who survive are still facing loss. They've had a horrible time and things aren't happily ever after. In dark fantasy, I think, I mean, this is general generalization, but still, dark fantasy does not. It can have happy endings, and I give as a perfect example um, Richard Cadry's Sandman Slim novels, which I adore and read like all of them as soon as they come out. Actually, I get them in galleries. Um, 
or arcs rather, and they're dark fantasy. Even though horrible things happen to people and, you know, it's nasty and stuff, it's got a feeling to it that's just different from horror. So that to me is a difference. It's I guess it's tonal and... Um, Again, with horror, there's a sense of dread. With dark fantasies, there's no sense of dread. There's nothing yeah. at stake. I mean, it, it's not that there's nothing at stake. It's just that um, by the end, it feels like there's less loss than there is in horror, if that yeah, makes sense. I've read a lot of uh, fantasy and, uh, and horror over the years, and I remember um, – Jack Ketchum was one of the first writers I read that I was like, oh shit, this is, <laughs> this is dark, like seriously yeah. dark. Yeah. And that was the, that was kind of the difference I noticed between the two genres uh, was like you said, there's just that kind of bleakness, bleakness to it bleak, at the end. Bleak. Yeah. Yeah. We like bleakness and darkness <laughs> here on the Grim Tidings podcast. Although I probably prefer it in short stories and novels. I, I think I'm, so. I've always thought supernatural fiction is better in short fiction than in novels. It's really hard to sustain the supernatural in a novel. Although I've been reading, you know, the novels that I like do, but I think it's much more difficult than in a short story and up to novella. In the past, uh, uh, authors when they were coming up as uh, as professionals, uh, the short story market tended to be a, a place that they could go to to kind of make a name for themselves. Would you say that that's still the case today? Sure. That to authors. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, there are plenty of authors who have mostly made a name, who don't even write novels yet. Um, some write a few novels. I mean, Laird Barron is known for his short stories, and he's written some novellas. I'm not, I'm not sure he's written an actual full-length novel. He may have. But he's really known for his short stories. And um, there are other writers, like many other writers like that, uh, I think, of <laughs> horror writers. Um, well, there are people who are starting out making a re starting to make a reputation of people I've published, Priya Sharma from England. She doesn't only write the thing is she doesn't only write horror; she also writes um, science fiction and fantasy. But I really love her horror. Um, and there are people who do both. I mean, Peter Straub obviously still writes terrific novellas and short stories, and he writes terrific novels. Um, I'm trying to think of people who mostly have done who really are well known for short stories. It's hard. So far, there aren't people who are exclusive. I'm, I don't know why I'm blanking on people who used to write <laughs> short stories or haven't published novels yet. Uh, I'm thinking. It's early. Yeah, I should have, like, table of contents or something. But anyway, uh, yeah, you can make, you can certainly make a reputation from your short fiction, but you have to make sure it's published in the right places. What I tell people is don't be desperate, so desperate to get published that you'll publish in something, someplace by someone who is not professional in their dealings or professional in the, they're not selling to a big market. What I mean is, okay, let me backtrack a little bit. I read anthologies all the time. Some anthologies are very, very, are unknown. The editors are unknown to me. I don't recognize one name inside the anthology. This is not a good sign. Um, at least if I recognize a few that something, I mean, I, I can't, I'm not saying I know every writer who, every horror writer who is writing these days, but I do know, know of their existence, of many of their existence. That makes no sense. Sorry, that sounds really <laughs> terrible. But I know of many who are starting out, but who are, have a reputation. Um, so when I read an anthology with not one name that I recognize, it sets off alarms. And usually this anthology is terrible. Um, they're just mediocre stories. So there's no way an, a writer who's selling their stories will know who else is in the anthology with them. But if you don't know the publisher, first of all, do your research. Check out the publisher. See who it is. If they're, sell, if they're doing a self-published thing, who is the editor? Do you know the editors? Do you know what they've done before? Have they ever edited anything before? Are they just editing their, you know, buying stories who, by their friends? Um, it's more important to get to be published in places that you'll actually be noticed and that your work will be getting respect and notice than to just get published any place, I mean, basically. And you should get paid for your writing. 
And that's the other thing. I mean, if you can't, you know, if you don't just put your writing up there for free, if no one's going to see it. The problem with self-publishing has always been, and still is, distribution um, and visibility. If you're not known to begin with, some people are very successful self-publishing, and I guess they have a wide enough group of social media friends and whatever who will buy their material, buy their work. Um, but not many people can do that. You know, so try to get published. You know, so so be patient. You know, be patient and get noticed by being in the right being in the right publications. I guess in the right venues for where you can where people actually see your work. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know what the question was. I've lost the question. <laughs> no, it was great. Are there some places that you would recommend for a starting off horror writer to try to get into? Like, where are the really? I mean, it's always start at the top and work your way down. Black Static, Nightmare. Um, the Dark is a website that, to me, is dark fantasy, not horror. I mean, they claim to be horror, but they're not. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't try them. I mean, FNSF. I mean, try all the venues. What the the good thing about my recommended list, and it's a long list, is that that means I found stories I liked, horror stories, in all of these venues, which means, you know, you, all you have to do is go online and look at my blog, um, which I don't post much in. But on my website, you know, the the honor, you don't even have to buy the book. All you have to do is look at my honor mention to see where a lot of the stories come from. Orealis and Australia buys horror, on spec buys horror in Canada. Um, you know, there are all these magazines that sometimes publish horror or things that I consider horror. So, you know, you can submit your work there. I mean, don't, don't, I mean, basically start at the top, you know, try to go to the top markets that pay the best and then move down from there. We have a lot of writers that listen to our show and um, they may be just starting out or they may not have. Uh, the confidence to submit things submit, because maybe. submit, do it. <laughs> don't just sit on your stories. If they're not out there, no one's going to see them. And also, when you submit, don't just sit and wait for the, a rejection or acceptance. Write your next story. You know, don't just sit around and say, "Oh, I submitted a story. What do I do now?" Well, you write another story. It don't. <laughs> you know, that's very simple. And I was just talking to a writers group the other night, and I said, um, I always say, cannibalize, cannibalize, cannibalize. If you can't sell a story in it, and it just never sells, or you can't do anything with it. Use parts of it. Don't ever throw anything out. Cannibalize it and use parts for something else. You know, eventually you may find a part of that story, that failed story, will work with something else. I'm a cannibal. That's good. <laughs> That's important. <laughs> you know, nothing gets it's wasted. Also, you might find that if you go back to it in two or three months, you can see what went wrong, and possibly. I mean, you know, and you, or you become a better writer over time, and you can go back and see what a horrible story it was. <laughs> but then you can still use pieces of it. Did you always want to be an editor, Ellen? Were you I don't even know what editor meant. I don't know how. I, I don't know what made me want to be an editor because I did not know what an editor did. I have really don't remember. I knew I wanted to work with books. Um, and reading. I always loved reading and I thought I'd be a librarian or work in a bookstore and I don't know where the idea of getting into publishing came from, I don't remember. Uh, but my first publishing job was sales secretary to the New York salesman at Little Brown and Company in New, the New York, sale, uh, New York office. Um, but my first, I actually applied for magazine jobs. This is back when you didn't have internet. This is back when I used the yellow pages to look at all the names of the publishers I'd heard of and sent my resume to everyone. And I got a call back, a call from um, Seventeen Magazine, I think it was. But they didn't hire me because I had no experience. And so the next call I got was for Little Brown and Company and they actually hired me as sales secretary. Um, and that was my first publishing job. But I don't remember what made me I don't even know how I knew what editing was. I guess it was buying stories. I don't know how that idea segued into, well, you work with people, with writers on their stories. You know, I wish I could go back to the time when I found this out, but I really don't remember how. It is that I figured out, well, this is what an editor does, not just buy the stories, but you work on them, the author. Well, it's worked out for you. It has. It has. <laughs> but it's like this Perfect. blank part of my life. It's like, how... 
how did that happen? And I have no idea. I really don't. It's kind of weird. <laughs> it's like sometimes I'll wake up in Japan and I'm like, how did I end up here? Like, I don't even remember getting on the plane. After this, I'd like to know. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I mean, isn't that strange that, I mean, it's not that it's I'm old that I don't remember. I just don't, I never knew. I, I don't remember. It's like, well, okay. Well, I ended up doing something I love. I'm really lucky. <laughs> Most people don't when they have a job. And then what what role do you see the anthology playing in ho- the horror genre today? What sort of statement do you see the, the anthology making um, in the genre? If that makes sense. Hopefully it's not too nebulous of a question. But um, you, you specialize in anthologies. Well, I'll, I'll specialize in anything that allows me to buy and edit short stories, actually. It doesn't matter whether it's an anthology or magazine. The reason I started, and this is, ba- this is not exactly answering, but um, the reason I started editing anthologies is whether I wanted to edit more. I wasn't editing as many stories as I would like at Omni. Um, as time went by, the number of stories I published each month were less. Um, so it gave me an opportunity to buy more stories and work with more authors. So that was my intention. Uh, it brings more stories into the world, whether they're, you know, and what I, this is not exactly an answer, I don't think, but what I love about my job is that with anthologies, because I'm soliciting writers, I'm soliciting stories from writers who I've worked with mostly, and maybe a new writer who I haven't worked with before, but I like their work, um, I'm getting people to write stories that they would not have written otherwise. When they're theme anthologies, some people would have written them, but a lot of times with theme anthology, it piques someone's imagination, and um, they'll write a story that they wouldn't have written otherwise. And to me, that's really wonderful. So it brings these stories into the world that would never have existed. Um, so I'm not. That, don't, that doesn't really answer the question. No, that's a great answer, okay. actually. Yeah. Great stuff. Well, we're almost out of time. Uh, thank you again so much for gracing us uh, on the show, kicking off October in a grand fashion with editor Ellen Datlow. EllenDatlow.com is the website for folks who want to check out uh, your long lists uh, recommendations. You've got writing advice there as well. So plenty of resources I think that folks can check out. Yeah, it's not very drop- active. I have to say it's very inactive. I hardly do anything <laughs> on there. So, I mean, I'm mostly active on Facebook and Twitter. I mean, I don't regularly blog. If anything, if I do opinions, it's on Facebook and they all go to Twitter. So, I mean, I don't do much on my, and, and my website's kind of out of date, just so you know. <laughs> Every once in a while, if something happens, I say, please put that, I want another, you. Oh, I don't even know if that's up there. I have to check if the new Yugo mention is up there. <laughs> So you've got a, a couple more anthologies uh, in the works coming out here shortly. Did you want to just talk a moment about what, what Ellen Datlow has coming out? Sure. Um, right now, uh, the next one is um, Children of Lovecraft, which is, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah Children of Lovecraft, duh. Um, from Dark Horse, it's all originals, and uh, it's more stories inspired by Lovecraft. It's I discourage pastiches. I do not like pastiches. There are, sometimes the stories are... Well, there's stories using Lovecraft's imagery, his cosmic horror, his, some of his ideas, and I think it's terrific. I really am very happy with them anthology. That'll be coming out in a few weeks. I got my first copy, which I think I showed. I did a picture of it on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, and then Nightmares, A New Decade of Modern Horror is the one coming out from Tachyon. It's a reprint anthology that's a follow-up to Darkness, Two Decades of Modern Horror. It covers horror. You can say it's my opinion of the best, some of the best writers and stories that were published between 2005 and 2015. Um, they're not, they're the stories that really made an impression on me. Some of them I had published, some of them I had reprinted, you know. So, I mean, you know, people want to know, well, what are your favorite stories? They're the ones I reprint all the time. It's very simple. If you see a story published more than once by me, it means I really love that story. <laughs> so that's what's coming out. Next year, I have a book, um, Black Feathers, which is Bird Horror that's coming out. It's mm. mostly originals with two, two reprints. That's coming out from Pegasus, I think, February. So, and that's interesting. 
so that's what I've got. And I'm also I'm in the middle of working on Hallow's Eve, the HWA anthology, with Lisa Morton, which we which was an open market for for HWA members for I think two months, and it, we solicited some writers. So that's hopefully will come out sometime in 2017. We're working on it now. So keeping busy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And we are, we, this is October and we're leading up to a really cool episode on, on Halloween. What do you do for Halloween, Ellen Datlow? Any special celebrations well, or parties? These or? days, unfortunately, I'm usually at World Fantasy. I used to go to the Halloween parade in New York. Um, I used to march in it sometimes, but it got too big and disgusting. So I never <laughs> go to that anymore. Um, and I'm, re- I'm really home on Halloween now. I will be doing... Um, a reading from Children of Lovecraft at Lovecraft Bar, I think October 16th or something like that, on It's a Sunday, with several of the writers coming from out of town to read for that. So that'll be fun. Um, oh, the, I also want to mention, you know, I do, some of them, there's a lot of, there is horror on tour.com too. I solicit, you know, I acquire stories for tour.com and, um, about a third of what I buy for tour.com is horror. And I don't think, you know, I don't think many readers realize that or not enough horror readers realize that there is horror on there. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think they did. I think I, when I think of tour, I usually think, you know, fantasy sci-fi, but you are the, uh, I bought horror. Fabulous beast was terrific. That was uh, by Priya Sharma. And that was in 2015. It was nominated for the Jackson award and something else. I think. Uh, so yeah, no, I've been publishing horror. Excellent. Although I've been looking to sign more science fiction because I never get science fiction. Well, I've actually recently published about three, four stories in a row that was science fiction. And then lastly, Ellen, best writing advice from an editor that you could give to a writer? That sticks out at the top uh, of your head. What I, would you, not, you I, that's a, oh, uh, well, cannibalize, cannibalize, cannibalize. Back to that. Be a cannibal. That's a good one. Be a cannibal. Yeah, be a cannibal. Can a cannibalize your own work if you can't sell it, if you... If you have a failed story, don't throw it out. Throw out nothing and keep submitting, basically. Don't give up. That's a, that's a good come away from a first episode of October. Ellen Datlow says, be a cannibal. <laughs> that's good. Well, Ellen, thank you so much uh, for your time today. And thank you for the impact that you've made on speculative fiction. And on behalf of, no doubt, thousands and thousands of readers that you've moved and entertained and inspired. Um, thank you for the work you've done and uh, the amazing work that you continue thank to do. Thank you very much. I hope I'll continue to do it forever. <laughs> we do, too. And three, two, one. That's where we'll wrap the the uh, the episode there. We uh, have some hey, music. Hey, so what is and... Grimdark? <laughs> I don't ah. understand what it is. Grimdark. Yeah. Okay, um, maybe we can edit this back into the episode. Yeah. So maybe we can, uh, Rob, go ahead and give your idea of it, and then I'll give my idea because there's many different ideas about Grimdark. Yeah, it's it's kind of a kind of a debated subject. What exactly is Grimdark? So it's um, gray characters, um, usually morally ambiguous characters, bleak settings. Um, going to be gritty violence, probably strong language. Um, I think Game of Thrones kind of maybe encapsulates a lot of the themes. I haven't um, seen that or read it, so I don't know enough. Interesting, interesting. So uh, it kind of encapsulates a lot of themes, but there's a lot of authors doing things, taking those themes and and expanding upon them. Um, there's like new character archetypes, like exploring the coward, um, and and kind of I don't know different characters as far as that regard goes. What about you, Philip? Yeah, I think it's it kind of goes against the tip. The uh, traditional uh, tropes of maybe fantasy or sci-fi where there's like a heroic kind of character uh, Mm -hmm. tends to focus more on, um, uh, like you said about uh, character doesn't have to be likable, but they have to be interesting. But Uh, why is that not horror? So Grimdark is very similar to horror, I think. It has... Very uh, a lot of times it has more realistic vibe. Um, the, the the fantasy is usually lower lower fantasy. So you're um, saying it's fantasy though? It's usually uh, it's type of fantasy. It's not a type of horror. It originally came from um, Warhammer, the Warhammer universe. Mm-hmm. So it was originally a sci-fi idea, mm-hmm. um, but it's kind of. Uh, writers like Joe Abercrombie or Mark Lawrence. Um, I know Abercrombie. I'm not familiar with Lawrence. Um, 
Um, Scott Lynch. Scott Lynch. R. Scott Baker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some. Some of these, their themes yeah, I are more. I haven't really read them. Uh, I have to admit. So maybe it sounds like they would have been considered dark fantasy initially. Or are they considered dark fantasy? It, it, it's kind of a fine line between dark fantasy and grim dark. Mm-hmm. It's we're, it's picking out those elements that kind of separate the two. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like you said, dark fantasy. Maybe it has more of a. Uh, sometimes it'll have a happy ending, or right. it has a lighter tone, even though it's dark. Right. Um, Grimdark tends to not have a lighter tone. It usually okay. Is. Let me put it, let me ask you like so. Would it be like fantasy? It's a fantasy worlds, but it's really grim. I mean, really dark. So that's why it's it's like. Yeah, the the themes and the characters are all pretty pretty fucking dark. Okay. Right. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, usually a secondary world, like it's a made up world. It's not right. Not our world usually. Right. Uh huh. Okay. But but it's one of these things that's been debated, uh, you know, back and forth and. A lot of people. We started. We started a Facebook group. It has sixteen hundred members now who like Grim. Wow. Huh. So it's we've we've developed an audience. We've got uh, thirty thousand downloads on our 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 podcast is kind of devoted to to Grim Dark. It's the first one that's kind of been out there, and people are definitely paying attention. So as as a subgenre, it has legs for okay. sure. Um, and uh, um, Grim Dark Magazine is a publication that they're based out of Australia. Started getting it. I'm not sure. Are there Grim Dark anthologies you can think of? Yeah, they just they just kickstarted one, got like twenty five, thirty thousand dollars to fund a whole grimdark anthology that's all bad guys. Okay. It's evil as a matter of perspective. So it's from the perspective of, of antagonists. Right. So um, it's a lot about gray characters and redeeming people who you think are completely shitty <laughs> and finding some way to redeem them okay. there at the okay. end. So um, there's a lot of cool themes and a lot of cool authors like yeah, Mark Lawrence, Joe Abercrombie doing really cool okay. stuff. So. <clears throat> and they've all come on our show. <laughs> so it's, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a, an adventure over the past year for sure. So, uh, so yeah. Yeah. Hopefully that answered the question. Yeah, it does. <laughs> I'm not sure I can define it myself, but yeah, it helps. Yeah. Thanks. We'll let you know if we, if we're, okay. <laughs> we're, we're still, we're still hammering it uh-huh. out. Over right. Well, I do, so. I do think it's, it's pretty close to horror in, in, the, in a lot of the themes, um, isolation or, uh, loss or mm-hmm. these kind of these kind of themes that pop up in horror a lot also pop up in grimdark as well. So magic and supernatural stuff is probably a little more subdued in grimdark as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it, like a lot of um, fantasy is going to have a lot of um, advanced magic systems. In grimdark, I kind of tend to see it's a little less yeah. played, low fantasy, a less gritty kind of fantasy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like in Wheel of Wheel of Time, nobody uses the bathroom, <laughs> right? <laughs> Most stories, no one like, uses the bathroom. Right? <laughs> but I mean, Grimdark gets into the nitty gritty, uh-huh. dark side of humanity. Okay. Um, so. there's, there's actually a Japanese uh, creature that I think should have more stories written about it that actually lives in a bathroom. What? It, <laughs> it licks the scum out of the uh, bathtub. Oh, how lovely! What's <laughs> <laughs> really disgusting monster. What's the creature called? <laughs> um, Aka something red. It, its name means like red mm-hmm. skin or something because the skin is really red from scrubbing in the bath or the the hot water. Yeah. Mm. So that's an interesting monster. <laughs> I see. I see a toilet monster anthology. <laughs> toilet it's monsters. Not by me. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we'll let you off the hook, Ellen. Thanks so much okay. for hanging well, out with us today. Thank you. It was fun. Pleasure. Great. Pleasure hanging thank out with you. And uh, we'll we'll let you know once the episode okay, comes have out. Have a great so. weekend. Yeah. You as you well. Too. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.